0: Welcome. You're listening to Wo Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry Magazine. I'm Marjolyn Baileyfeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. We're here today with Dr. Whitney Hauser, founder of Dry Eye Coach, a peer-to-peer education site and a dry eye information hub on the web at dryeyecoach.com. Welcome, Dr. Hauser.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: So glad you could be here. Um, Love to hear you talk about dry eye. It's clearly a passion of yours. How did that come about?
1: You know, uh, I've been involved in dry eye for, you know, most of my career in some form or fashion. And about four years ago or so, um, I started getting more involved in speaking and writing. And as I did, I recognized that a lot of my colleagues had an interest in dry eye, they just didn't have some of the foundational information. And that was in large part because most optometry and ophthalmology are pulled in so many different directions, so many different, you know, disease processes and responsibilities. You know, we're looking for glaucoma, diabetes, we're refracting, you know, there's surgical considerations. There's so many different avenues in each and every day in, in your practice to to explore and to have to treat dry eye tended to be one that fell by the wayside and was sort of set aside because in large part, not being vision threatening, it wasn't something that was really mandated uh, for the patient's care. And I found that many of my colleagues, again, had interest. They just didn't really know what to do with it and how to do it and had questions about the clinical aspects of it, but also about what it meant to their practice.
0: And it may not be vision threatening, but it's awfully darn distracting.
1: Right. It, it, I mean, it's quality of life compromising for patients and, you know, symptoms tend to be what drive patients into your office. So symptoms drive dry eye a lot of times for patients and they'll come in and they'll want more. They'll want, you know, something new, something novel. And a lot of times, you know, the, the practitioner's almost have been conditioned to think there's not anything out there to provide relief for them. And both sides kind of walk away frustrated. And I think what's been amazing in the last several years is the you know invention, the innovation, all that we've seen that has come into the dry eye market from an ophthalmics perspective, from an equipment perspective, both diagnostics and therapeutics are really just exploding for dry eye right now. And I think it's an exciting time for both doctors and patients because we can set aside our former frustrations and start to explore some new avenues of of treatment that may provide significant relief for the patient, both visually as well as from a comfort perspective.
0: And the public awareness has exploded too, I think.
1: Exactly. You know, those products, you know, drive awareness in large part. Um, the new pharmaceuticals coming to, to market, the new pieces of equipment—they're getting out in front of patients in direct to consumer, and that same raise in awareness to the general public kind of brings them into our offices with new questions and new you know products they want to explore. And I think that even the most you know reluctant physician will now say, "Okay, I'm going to have to up my game in dry eye because my patients are demanding right. it."
0: Um so what would be the top 3 or 5 things that a uh, that reluctant practitioner should start to do.
1: You know, the first thing you do is establish what your level of commitment to dry eye is. You know, a lot of doctors come in and want to jump in with both feet. And while I commend that, sometimes jumping in without a plan winds up, you know, setting you back rather than moving you forward. So establish what your level of commitment is to that. And by that, I mean, utilize some of the tools that you already have clinically in your office without going out and making any significant investments in new new, uh, equipment. And once you do that for months, six weeks, and you start to incorporate you know, some surveys into your patients you think are susceptible to dry eye and you start to really, you start to really determine what you can do, then uh, I think you'll find there's more opportunity there. Once you've determined your commitment level to it, then you can start exploring, how can I grow my dry eye practice? Doing an internal assessment of Who your your patients are, who's in your database already is a great way to do that. And once you've got commitment, you have a patient population to serve, then you start, you know, investing in diagnostics, therapeutics, uh, and really growing that part of your practice.
0: So it's okay to dabble in dry eye?
1: Absolutely. Dry eye is something Mm -hmm. everyone can do. You know, they, it, and, that's what, and that's a little bit of the misconception is that, well, everyone can do it. So everyone's doing it. Well, that's nothing could be further from the truth. Everyone can do it, but not everyone is being even um, acknowledging of it in their, their current setting. So by all means, you know, start day one. Everyone should have fluorescein in their office. Everyone should have a slit lamp in their office. And there's no reason to say you can't jump in and and start day 1 and and start being more attentive to the condition.
0: And what about a protocol? I mean, are there enough of them sort of available on resources like Dry Eye Coach and and others that you can kind of know what to right. do with these patients?
1: Exactly. We you know, there's so many different you know, robust, substantive documents that have come out over the last several years. You know, we just had the new uh, TFOS 2 that was um, printed and published last year in 2017. It's an incredibly, incredibly thorough document. And sometimes the thoroughness of it and the, the length can be intimidating to practitioners who just don't have the time to carve out and dive in uh, with great detail. So, what we've done on Dry Coach is we have a, in our learning hub, we have a treat section. The treat section is a more fundamental protocol. And our protocol is based not only on, you know, clinical evidence and and research, but it's also based on what you have in your office to work with. Because, you know, we don't all have the bells and whistles. We don't all have, you know, all the diagnostic tools and therapeutic tools at our disposal. And it really just sort of tiers the protocol based on what you have in your office. And it allows you to see Potential down the road for if I add another piece, what will happen? If I add this piece, what can I add to my practice? Um, because as much as we'd like to say, you know, money is no object. Money is always an object in practice. And you have to consider what investment is versus the return on that investment.
0: And what you said about it being intimidating. I mean, the one of the findings of that TFOS study was that this really is a multifactorial disease process which in one way makes it more complicated. It's not this, it's not this. It could be some combination.
1: Right, right. Oh, no doubt. I mean, there's definitely a paralysis of analysis when it comes to dry eye. It most certainly is multifactorial, but a lot of those factors can be assessed in quick succession at the slit lamp, you know, for, for a basic overview. You know, when you look at it, we, we definitely readily accept the inflammatory and often obstructive components of dry eye disease in terms of my gland dysfunction being the lion's share of the patients that we have in dry eye. However, you know, looking for things like lagophthalmos, the failure to completely close the eyes, blepharitis, demodex, allergy, um, conjunctival choasis, on and on and on, all those things can be readily assessed at the slit lamp, again, and not taking away from the efficiency of your day. So I think the multifactorial nature of it, unfortunately, is can be intimidating, particularly in a lecture setting where you are sort of inundated with all these things you should be looking for. But when a practitioner really sits down and thinks about it, you know, these are things that we look for each and every day. We just need to raise our level of awareness of it.
0: So how does bringing dry eye into a practice work with an existing schedule? Does it throw it out the window?
1: You know, that's... Uh, Great question and a very commonly asked question. And just like with anything, you have to really earn the right to amend your schedule to make room for that sort of thing, to, to really carve it out. Dry eye needs to be taking up so much time in your regular day that you've earned the right to have, you know, a half day or a day for dry eye. Um, I think until that time hits, it's good to embed that into a traditional schedule until it becomes, not maybe until it becomes overwhelming. You certainly don't want to, you know, make your staff uncomfortable or yourself have a miserable day. But as soon as you see the tide is turning, then it would be time to sort of plan ahead and set aside time. Certainly if you have um, any equipment like a intense pulse light or you have Lipiflo or ILUX or something that is going to take more time out of the doctor's day or the staff's day, setting aside a treatment day or a treatment half day may be a good option because then you can just roll through those treatments in, in quick succession. Um, you know, we have to just keep in mind, dry eye patients, you know, many of them are, you know, out in the workforce, and we want to make our appointments accessible to them. If you lock it into, we only do dry eye on Thursday afternoons, you may find your dry eye clinic starts to suffer because of inaccessibility.
0: And so that becomes a factor when you've accumulated the uh, specialty equipment that you don't necessarily need to start with.
1: Right, right. You, you just tree drive through your general patient population. As you see the, the, the trend in your favor for treating more of those patients, you're going to start adding in some diagnostics. You're going to start adding in some therapeutics. And then again, still incorporating that into your traditional flow. But that has to be sort of an open dialogue, an open conversation with staff, both practice managers, who your lead technicians are, to to see what's working and what's not working for time management and efficiency. And that's important because as soon as something gets in the way, as soon as we encounter a barrier with efficiency, someone's not gonna wanna do that job anymore. Someone's not gonna wanna do tear house molarity, not wanna run a my because it's gonna make them late for lunch, gonna make them late to leave for their kid's soccer game. So we need to constantly be reassessing what our standard operating procedure is that doesn't mean that this is something that's going to take hours of planning. It just means you need to have that, you know, quick huddle with the staff and say, look, what's working, what's not working. Let's make, let's pivot and make a little bit of a change here and being open-minded to that change ultimately is going to make the practice be able to move it forward.
0: I'm glad that you brought up the staff because obviously they're critical. Um, how might a doctor emphasize or introduce the idea that he or she is going to start incorporating more
1: dry eye well you've you've raised a great point you know what I usually encourage doctors to do is talk to the staff in the front end people our staff really want to help the patients and if we talk to them about look there's a huge unmet need here you know Staff understands glaucoma. Staff understands AMD. They understand retinal detachments. They're accustomed to triaging a lot of these patients. But what we need to do is raise their level of awareness and say, you know, there's 30 million people in the United States who are symptomatic for dry eye. Of that 30 million, only about 16 million have been diagnosed. And of the 16 million, only about 1.5 million are treated with anything above and beyond artificial tears. So when you look at that large unmet need, these are patients that are flowing through our office each and every day that really need us. And I think that staff can be very inspired by the unmet need. Once they feel that level of, okay, now I know why we're doing what we're doing. You know, that's really what motivates people is is the why. And you can always incorporate, you know, the, the representatives from different companies that are bringing equipment into your office, people that are representatives from pharmaceutical companies, they all want to help educate staff and raise that level of awareness. And I think all those things are a great way to start. And once they have that, the knowledge base of why you're wanting to do what you're wanting to do, you know, there's always opportunities to incentivize, um, based on production for certain things and and with vacation days and so forth. If you're trying to meet certain goals, once you get um, some of that advanced equipment in your office.
0: So where do patients begin talking about dry eye symptoms? Is it on the survey? Is it with the tech? Does it wait till the exam room?
1: Well, some, you know, it's funny. I was kind of talking about triaging patients. If you, Call any optometry or ophthalmology office in the United States and you say to the person at the front desk, I see flashes of light. They're immediately going to triage you as a retinal detachment patient. They're going to try to get you in that day. They're going to tell you what to watch for. They're going to give you a sense of urgency as a patient to get in. If a patient calls and says, my eyes are burning and red and my vision's fluctuating, they'll get you in at the earliest possible appointment, but it won't be... As the same level of urgency, and and to a degree, nor should it be because of the medical emergency associated with retinal detachment. However, you know, sometimes that message that the patient said when they called in gets lost at that point of contact, and that patient is scheduled for a comprehensive eye exam, they're scheduled for, you know, a red eye, whatever. But really, what the patient said, and likely, is that. They have some element of dry eye, eye irritation that needs to be investigated. So what I would do as part of our staff education is sort of highlight that so we don't lose that patient. We want to cast as wide a net as possible to draw those patients in and put them in the right funnels as they're coming into our office. Uh, And then once they're in the office, you sort of hit the nail on the head. Using surveys is great. I know a lot of doctors think, man, another survey, another piece of paper, what a drag. That's not going to be great for my practice. Patients aren't going to want to fill it out. Things like the DEQ-5, the speed are really fast. They're easy to score. Uh, There's also the questions from the Dry Eye Summit of 2014, which are available uh, online if you were to look those up. And they're really easy questions that you can add into any case history and allow uh, for a really wide net to be cast and then kind of pull those patients in doesn't mean that all the patients you answer positively on a survey are going to be your dedicated dry eye patients for life, that they're going to come in and do all the, you know, diagnostics and treatments you have available. But you get zero response from never asking. So, you know, even if you're capturing 20 to 30 percent, that's 20 to 30 percent of patients you never would have had.
0: Right. Right. And those results can help you as the doctor figure out the next step. Exactly. Exactly.
1: You know, we have to look at both signs and symptoms and, you know, the surveys are giving us uh, an idea about symptoms and then uh, we go into signs and, and as a doctor, we can track that with particularly the validated surveys that give a number to a feeling, you know, they, they quantify how you feel. And I had a patient who came in the other day and we had done an advanced procedure on her and we looked back at her surveys from prior to the procedure and it had been cut in half and she knew she felt better but it was different when she saw wow I'm cut in half that it felt it really validated the feelings that she had or you know in terms of her own improvement so I think it's a it's a great way to do that it's a great way to also tease out patients who have you know some emotional problems some, who have some psychological problems who always feel like nothing's ever great for them. And as soon as they see from their own hand, if you will, on a survey that they've had some marked improvement, then they can then appreciate, gosh, you know, maybe I am getting a little bit better.
0: Yeah. And that makes it easier for them to to come back in and, or to stay with the um, prescribed
1: Right. Yeah. To stick with a regimen that you've, you've developed and it's encouraging and everyone wants to be encouraged, no matter how confident you are and how, you know, fundamentally happy you are, everyone's fed by encouragement. And, and a lot of times those surveys are just that little boost that the patient and frankly, the practitioner needs as well, that we're on the right course. And dry care is not driven entirely by symptoms. I mean, as doctors, we want to look at signs and see improvement in terms of you know, SPK in the cornea and we want to see, you know, less obstruction of meibomian glands, but, you know, happy patients are really encouraging to doctors. And I think using those surveys, you can really kind of assess that, that level of improvement.
0: And I think you said it right there too, because earlier you had mentioned this is a quality of life issue. So if you solve someone's dry eye issues
1: It's a happy person and happy people are the ones that tell all their friends about their wonderful doctor. And let me tell you about my doctor. You know, that is the greatest, uh, the greatest thing you can hear from a patient is kind of over here that they've not only just bragged about you, but really referred people to you and said, they do something different. And while there's certainly no cures for dry disease. And as I tell my patients, it's like we work a puzzle and six, nine months later, somebody may shake the puzzle up and we have to rework it and be patient with each other and work together. Um, I think that just knowing that that doctor has the, the patience, the dedication to working with you on that really makes the patient dedicated and, you know, to your entire practice,
0: that's wonderful. And so, doctors, obviously, there's a lot of education on dry eye. It's in all the professional journals. Um, it's certainly offered at a lot of uh, meetings, but a accessible form of it is to go right now to dryeyecoach.com.
1: Absolutely, you know, it's free to jump on Dry eye Coach. You, it is free to subscribe. We offer. You know, newsletters that come out periodically. We try not to inundate you with, you know, too many emails and things like that. But we have new content that'll be rolling out this fall and into the winter, new videos from our key opinion leaders in both optometry and ophthalmology, just to give really their views on how they do what they do. Perfect.
0: Doctor Hauser, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for sharing these strategies.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on W.O. Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at wovoicesonline@gmail.com at gmail.com or via our website womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at W.O. Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.